Outsider by Edgar Millian. The news said it was a plot by Al-Qaeda or Islamic State. Twitter and that shouty American bloke on YouTube said it was the Jews, the New World Order coming to enslave us. David Icke probably said it was lizard people, but I'm only guessing because that's the sort of thing he said. When people find out I was there on that terrible day, they ask me who or what I thought it was. Certain my presence must have endowed me with some greater wisdom. Then, when I can only tell them no more than their Facebook, they switch to suspicion. If I don't know, then I must have been a part of it. The inside man. Mostly, I agree with their point of view. I was there. I should know what happened. When I returned to my office the next day, I was met with a human fist of a crowd jostling me screaming at me, hungry for fascination for the terrible things which had happened. I understood their hunger. If such a thing could have happened to us, then it could happen to anyone. We are all so fragile. They bayed at me, as though they were wolves howling at the moon, as I rattled the heavy plate glass doors. Of course the doors were shut fast, I should have known really after what had happened, but why would they be open? So I had to plunge back into the crowd again, which was still pleading with me to know the truth. I wish I knew what happened, but I don't. Do you believe me, right? Even if you don't believe me, it changes nothing. I mean, I know what just don't understand why it happened. The day was just a normal day. Most days are, you know, normal, I mean. At least until the extraordinary happened to change it all. I got into work early. I've always liked an early start. A cup of tea, covered in delicious greasy film and a bacon roll from the canteen, wrapped in brown paper which looks like the stuff you'd send a parcel in. Some days, if I'm trying to be healthy, I will substitute it with a granola-covered honey yoghurt and a freshly squeezed juice, but on that morning I'd just been to the gym and had earned my bacon roll. My early morning routine. Sat at my desk, I'd spend around 45 minutes on the news site and maybe tick off a few emails before the day began proper. Little things. Don't get me wrong, I'd bust the gut for the rest of the day, but that was mine. The slow boot up of my brain. We sold insurance, but everyone knows that, right? For a while there, we were the single most famous insurance company in the world. Infamous. But at that moment, we were just an anonymous granite grey eight-storey block of glass and steel on the edge of Ilford Town Centre selling life insurance to lower-risk individuals and Gwyneth Bloody Paltrow. I was in the underwriting section, not needing to sully myself by actually selling false hopes and matches directly. That's unfair. We sold pretty decent products, 
really. But it's the English mindset, isn't it? Do the good job. Self-deprecate yourself to within an inch of your life, so people know you're not being too big-headed. We were a decent mid-range company who most people hadn't heard of, even though if you had life insurance, there was a good chance the policy was underwritten by us. By around nine, the late shift started arriving, and by ten, it was the mums and dads straggling in from the schoolroom. Wouldn't mind so much, but they started after me and finished before, mostly. But apparently they were full-time. Still, no need to be bitter. I'm not a man who entered the world of employment after finding my true love, my true vocation. But what can you do? You can sit at home all day watching Jeremy Kyle, like my cousin Arison, or even be in and out of the nick like my oldest friend Bodge. But where, or more importantly, what does that get you? I'm all for the consumerist acquisition of nice things. A decent car, the newest, most shiny phone, top-end coffee maker, and a car I don't drive because I take the tube. Unless I'm there, working my backside off, I don't get them. Sure, so far, so shallow, but I was born to the old nine-to-five. Solid job, occasional work romance, and a nice little shared ownership flat down on Beaker Street. Who could want for anything more? The office was normal too, I thought. The usual chessboard mix of personality types which made for a good ebb and flow. Not too many alpha queens, just enough pawns, and plenty of in-betweeners. Me? I was probably a knight back then. That's a horsey few non-chess playing types prone to unexpected twists and turns, more useful than unskilled chess players realise. These days, more of the rook. Solid. Driven. Focused. I liked to watch the pieces move. Craig and Rocky stood nearby and had the same conversation they always do. I mean, did. Every day about the cost of buying property in those days, even in grotty old East London, and about what they'd have done differently if they could have seen the future. I'd have moved up north if there were any jobs. I'd have bought a spare house back in the 90s, better than the pension. My pension is looking next to worthless. I'll be working till I'm 90 at this rate. I don't know how young people will ever afford to buy. I reckon my son and daughter will be at home forever. This is a daily conversation, a short Beckett play, and even with the many times they varied and reenacted it, this coarse hex is tattooed onto my memory. Normal, normal, normal day. I fought so hard about what happened, searched these conversations, these interplays, with a forensic gaze, but I come up short every time. Well, Mr. Jones. The big police officer said to me, why don't you explain to me in your own words exactly what happened on this normal day? I remember my voice rising into a shrill screech. I could smell the man questioning me. He'd clearly been up all night and there was a pungent odour of him in the room, stale sweat mixed with the faintly fruity odour of e-cigarettes. 
You know what happened. You know. I said, why do you need me to go through this? Sir, we need to understand what happened. If you'd asked me that morning how many people worked in my building, I'd have taken a stab at around 400. As it turned out, there were exactly 688 people who called Insurance International home. But I didn't know that. Not did anyone. Well, I suppose someone did. The head of HR, maybe, or finance, but within days, everyone knew. There's a number of dead shot up from the starting estimate of 30 souls lost. Reports are coming in of mass casualties outside an office block in East London. Currently, 30 people are feared dead. Police have confirmed there is no immediate evidence of terrorism, but they are not ruling it out. I read it all back later on, one of those minute-by-minute minute things on the Guardian site. The ones which used to be about football or other sporting events, but now get dragged out for every rolling disaster or news story, from bombings in Syria to the resignation of the Prime Minister. Continuous bite-sized updates which mostly serve to illustrate how little they know at any point in a given tragic story arc. I read 50 feared dead, 100. The figure hovered around 400 until three days later when the hospital released a firm final tally. 687 from a workforce of 688. Guess who was the lucky one to beat the math? From my desk on the first floor, I'd had a clear view through the open plan office and out across East London, back onto the centre of the city, and the ever-growing number of oddly-shaped towers which keep sprouting up even now, like big empty glass daffodils all over London. I knew, I mean really knew, about ten or so of my colleagues on the floor, and maybe a hundred casually throughout the whole of the building. I'd been there a while. There were some friends, one or two, like Casey up in finance, who I'd hang out with after work. You know how it is. You know how it is. I wept with Casey's wife at his funeral, unable to explain why I was still there, why he no longer was. Later, I just missed him, my friend. Missed watching sports down the pub, missed arguing with him about politics. He left the old bastard. Sometimes I still go to message him, some stupid or banal thing up and a politician is there. Then I remember he's not there. He's not there. So it was an ordinary Wednesday morning. I like to listen to headphones when I work, it helps me to concentrate, but on that day I was just letting the low thrum of machine noise and conversation cover me like a blanket. Listening to that skinny guy from the business analysis team try and chat up Karina Hassan from the health and safety unit. Every day he went through this routine, his wireframe body arched in an effort to, at apparent flirtation. Taking Karina's polite laughter as a sign he had a chance, before mooching back up to his hacker style nest in the corner to peek out at her from between his monitors. Stalker. But he was. Harmless enough, probably. 
anyway. Who knows? He was persistent enough. She was single. Maybe she did have a chance. Honestly, honestly, who knows what straight women look for? They're not really my thing. The female half of the species. But since I tend to like my men handsome and built like proverbial brick shit houses, I'm not much of a judge of ordinary blokes like since so many women seem to settle for these oddly put together little chaps, maybe his doomed love had a chance. Or not. Well, At about half past eleven, I return from getting a coffee to see Big Boss Colin McCartney march into the centre of the office, flanked by crowds of staff I half recognised from other when I briefly wondered if we were about to be downed to as he pointed to people individually. Come on, he called. It's time. And then, one by one, my colleagues stood up and began to follow. Colin McCartney was a big, brash man who liked to tell people he'd started off working for Insurance International in the post room, although everyone knew his uncle owned the company. Still, he was an undeniable force, making men and women alike agitated in his presence, nervous for attention and rare praise. He didn't point at me. I said to the police officer, what about the detective? Who was looking as though he was having a hard time deciding between playing nice or nasty cop. So was instead settling for slightly bemused cop until he decided what kind of bastard I was. Maybe that's why I survived, I said to him. Maybe it was some kind of hypnotism or mind control. The policeman looked at me closely, looking as though he might have decided to categorise me as a bastard of the sneaky variety. And what do you know about mind control, sir? I didn't know anything about mind control. I just knew. They all got up and followed him towards the stairwell at the end of the floor, filtering in what my friend, PC Plot, would have probably described as an orderly fashion. I was meant to be assessing and change in the regulations for a business in Bethnal Green. But abandoned on the floor, I just sat and stared around me for a while. Everyone just left. Quite disconcerting. Why hadn't I been invited? Where had they gone? I walked over to the stairwell and pushed open the heavy green fire doors. If I listened hard, I could still hear the clamour of shoes and the concrete treads far above. Then, the silence. I stood, toying with the idea of following them. Why should I be left out? What are they meeting about? When I saw the first one go. There, in the periphery of my vision, I saw them go, then tried to balance it out in my mind. Not real, I thought. Not real. Not real. Maybe a coat or a sweater blowing in the wind? Not real. Because it was just one at first, but one was enough to draw me back onto the floor for a closer look. Can I really see them? I wondered, edging towards the window, a nervous chemical pool of tension flooding my stomach. Before I reached the window, the next one went. I knew for certain this time. Time did that slow-mo thing which I read somewhere is a result of difficult memories being written onto the amygdala as we return. 
in every quiet moment, in every nightmare filled sleep. It's the difference between an engraving and a photograph. The photograph takes a second to create, but it's flimsy, transient. The engraving takes half an hour, but it's there forever. Permanent, fixed. Time slowed enough to see his face as he went past. Colin McCartney, CEO of Insurance International, body stiff and rotating like a diver who'd just launched himself into an Olympic-style dive from the highboard and followed his motion down to the ground, crunching into the floor with a sound which I heard even through the heavy plate of glass. What did I just imagine I heard it? I howled through the cold glass at him, screamed no and banged onto the window. No, stop, no! His body lay awkward and misshapen, close to the other body, the coat. Someone I didn't recognise from this strange perspective, but who I would later discover was the sour-faced receptionist whose name I still can't remember. Like so many things, I feel like I should know this, but I don't. I feel like I should know all their names, but I didn't then, and don't now. The Sun did a four-page pull-out with photos of every survivor, and I didn't recognise even half of them. I see they feel guilty about this, but what else is there for me? An old lady stood nearby, on the pavement below, looking at them, frozen with an open-mouthed look of horror on her face. An English old lady version of the scream, although later it turned out she was Romanian. For a moment she noticed me dressed against the glass, and we shared a moment of misery. But then, her eyes scanned up the building above me. She stepped back, short stumble at first, then twisted and ran a distance away from the building dragging one of those old lady trolleys behind her, bumping clumsily along the uneven paving, before spinning off in a cat-like crouch, unbecoming of an old lady. God, I actually thought that at the time. Why is that old lady crouching like an extra from Monty Python? Then it came. What's that line from The Passion? Après moi, des deluge. Yeah, I know. Louis the whatever said it first, or Madame de Pompidou. But I remember it from that. Do you know when the next one fell? Except they didn't fall. That's what they told me afterwards. That's what the witnesses who were interviewed said. They jumped. They stepped. They weren't thrown. They didn't stumble. They just lined up en masse along the edge of the roof and launched themselves off together in orderly rows. It was a free, sad waterfall of humanity. The window was dark with it for about 30 seconds. Suits shirts, skirts, standard office attire, interspersed with semi-recognisable faces, calm in their descent. Didn't see Casey fall. I saw Carmina. I saw Maggie from comms and Daniel from HR, who I had a little thing with way back when. I saw the calm, expressionless faces of friends. Then they were gone. You'd think that some of the later ones might have been saved by falling onto the bodies of their colleagues. A gruesome thought, but gruesome thoughts are born in such moments. Turns out, eight stories is really bloody high. Like that, and the fact they all seem to be aiming for bare concrete, like skydivers finding a mark. So, 
old death. 688. I went upstairs, I told Claude. Found a steel open door leading onto a tarmac roof I'd never visited before. But there was no one there. I walked over to where they'd jumped from. I couldn't look over the edge, or I couldn't walk towards it. So I just knelt down and crawled, sticking my nose over the metal frame on the side, seeing the bloody mass of humanity on the pavement below. Ambulances and police had begun arriving, looking like toys far below. And I battled to try and make sense of how, how could this happen? I went to several funerals. Stopped attending the receptions, people kept getting drunk and blaming me. Other than that, I'd encounter small cliques which stared at me with small beetle eyes and suspicious red rims. How dare you be here? Their eyes asked. Three days after it happened, I got a call from the firm. Mr. George? An American voice asked. Yes? We're from head office and we'd like to meet you. Where? The voice paused, considering the option. Well, it doesn't have to be the office. I'd rather it were, I told the voice. I need to come back in to try to understand. Like that was even possible. When I arrived in reception, a security guard I didn't recognise walked to the door and stared at me wearing an expression of deep mistrust. But he let me pass, presumably on the instructions of the Yank, Jay, who I'd spoken to the other day. As I waited in the cool silence of the empty building, I wondered, for the second time in three days, if I were about to lose my job. Seemed a reasonable assumption. Suspected murderer that I was, going back to an office empty of humanity. We were done. It made sense. We couldn't carry on after this. I knew I couldn't take those suspicious looks. They would give me my last pay packet and then some sort of payoff. And I can move on. Good night, and God bless. That was two years ago. The dirty, suspicious looks never entirely disappeared. But those uncomfortable situations became less common. Every once in a while, I'd go into one of the local pubs and find some semi-familiar face glowering at me over a pine one night, two men attacked me and my then boyfriend and left to go home. What did you do? They asked, pressing me up against the wall. How did you do it? They picked the wrong people to beat up, if I'm honest. I handled myself adequately and Paul wasn't trained to be a cage fighter, but we were relatively gentle with them because I understood their confusion understood their need for an answer where there was none. Some people would come up to me in a crowded street and tell me they forgave me or that they didn't believe I'd done anything. But I felt like a curious creature ever since. Like the last dodo on the island of Mauritius. Even I wonder sometimes, did I do something? We all hate our co-workers some days, right? Did I do some magic hoodoo voodoo in my dreams which wiped them all out? As you probably know, Insurance International stayed open, and if you know that, then you probably know I stayed working there. A 
minor celebrity thanks to the anything goes inclusivity of modern media banking really bored me so I went home to the company that might seem strange in fact I know from the article the ghoul returns that some people found it so but where was I to go instead of sacking me the firm said they were intending to keep the branch open how can it stay open? I asked. No one's left, not even the cleaners. I can't be in here on my own. I looked around the cavernous office space, taking in the man opposite, Jay Jones, slouching across a small leather sofa in a ten grand suit. We need to rebuild the brand. Even if we were close and you're the only one with the vaguest idea how things worked around here, we still need you. You can help us get things in order. So perversely, I got a promotion that day, along with a massive stress-related payout for my silence and the promise not to sue them later. I think that might be part of the reason people still give me those looks now. As though I somehow engineered the mass suicide of all my colleagues for a mortgage-free life and an extra 30 grand a year. Even my new colleagues tend to be a bit cool with me. Like I have some magic power and turn them into human lemmings. Only I say the forbidden word. I seem to attract the wrong type of man these days as well. Still a bit of a muscle Mary magnet, but now a different type. Seems to be here because of that normal day. Because they perceive a darkness in me which really isn't there. Or at least wasn't there before my colleagues have all did that thing. It's funny, funny strange, rather than funny haha, but things at Insurance International did more or less return to normal. Petty jealousies and flirtations. Business politics and manoeuvring. Complaints about the cost of property in London. Bacon rolls and greasy tea at my desk as I review my emails ahead of the late shift getting in. Life carries on. For me. For no one else. Epilogue. Morning when I entered the building and sat at my desk, I experienced a dark sense of deja vu. Another ordinary day I found myself thinking. A vague sense of panic building. There was a guy who looked almost like that Darren Dennard guy, flirting with a pretty blonde from HR. And the office had the same quiet vibe it had all those years ago. I shook my head and bit my lip, remembering that day. I keep the memory of that morning in a thick wooden box marked, don't open, but I can't help it some days. Sometimes the lid is open even before I realise. That day smells of hospitals and sounds like police sirens. Today sounds like dread and silence and I don't like it. I might tell Jay, my now boss, and his sick day. So I rise and lean against my desk, gripping it as I'm the Hulk, preparing to launch it across the room and then gaze around for him. I'm on the seventh floor these days, in management, which happened in part to get me away from the workspace downstairs, although it didn't make much of a difference. The floor is a slightly better decorated echo of the room downstairs. I haven't seen Jay all morning, so I began dialing him 
until I hear his Philip Glass ringtone in the distance going unanswered as he enters my flock. I call to him as he approaches and experience a lurch of fear in my stomach as I become aware he is flanked by a crowd and ordering more to join him as he moves forwards. Now, 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 he says to people who mutely join him on an upward march, but not to me. I move and follow anyway, creeping along the edges of the gathering crowd. Hey, hey, I ask Barry from comms, dreading the answer. What are we all doing? He stops for a moment, pushes a drunk, stubby finger onto my lips to silence me. But Barry, we need... I'm muffled by the finger again. His pupils are almost non-existent, but he mumbles something which sounds like... It's time to go. Is this place cursed? I follow the crowd into the stairwell and find myself caught in a river rolling uphill and out onto a roof which you'd expect Kent Lock these days find my colleagues lined up like 20 rows of chess pieces just waiting for what? The signal to jump? Shit. I know how this goes. I've been here before on that other day. I can't take this again, I think, watching Jay take his position at the front, ready to plunge. Jay, I say to him as I weave through the crowd of people. Why are you doing this? He speaks, but his voice sounds far away, drugged. It is time to go. I look back at the mass of people, apparently waiting for a sign or an order. I'll recall the look I got from the locals last time round. After this new travesty takes place, God, something like Ceausescu found hanging from a lamppost. So I decide. This time, I act. I look into J. Jones' blank eyes, then run as hard and fast as I can past him taking a long jump into nothing, stomach in my mouth as I hurtle through the air. The phrase, après moi, the deluge, bubbling into my mind as I go.